right, Acts chapter 1, we are going to be beginning uh, our new book as we are going to journey through the Acts uh, of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start right off the bat with a little introduction into the book. And as you guys make your way that direction, I called it that uh, on purpose. Many of your Bibles at the top will say Acts of the Apostles. And while, as we go through these 28 chapters, you are for sure going to see many acts that take place with the apostles, and yet the cast of characters is going to change. Sometimes we'll see Peter highlighted. Other times it'll be Paul and Silas, and then it'll be Paul and Barnabas. And so we see lots of different uh, characters, but there is one consistent person that we see throughout the book of Acts, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so as often as this is called the Acts of the Apostles, I would encourage you, and by the way, it's not blasphemy to do this, you can actually mark out the word apostles, and you can write under it, Holy Spirit, if you like. Again, you're not going to get in trouble with any kind of uh, church rules. Now, uh, this book is written by, you probably already cheated and looked up on the screen, but one of our gospel writers, none other than the good doctor, Dr. Luke, is the writer of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough, a little fun fact is that uh, Luke actually wrote more words in the New Testament than any other writer. Now, Paul is credited with writing 13 books, roughly 23% of the words that are in our New Testament, but Luke, a Greek, a non-Jew, actually wrote over 27% of our New Testament in terms of words. Now, Luke was, as I mentioned, a Greek by birth, so he wasn't of a Jewish upbringing, and also he was a doctor by trade. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4 calls Luke the beloved physician. Now, I don't know if uh, any of you have a physician, but how many of you think they're beloved? It depends on what tests or what ways they poke and prod on you, right? But Paul clearly had an affection for Luke. He calls him the beloved physician. And what we find is Luke is uh, journaling this and, and writing these uh, acts down. It's very interesting. When you get to chapter 16, the pronouns change. He talks a lot about they and them, documenting all that had taken place until you get to chapter 16, verse 10, and then he says, us and we. And so the change of pronouns show us that Luke actually joined in during Paul's second missionary journey somewhere around Troas. Now, historically speaking, this book covers roughly 30 years of time span from the time of the resurrection of Jesus, which we're going to look at a little bit today as we hear from the resurrected Christ, all the way to around 62 to 64 A.D. And we know uh, that it had to be before 70 A.D. because Luke makes no mention of the destruction of the temple, which took place historically at 70 A.D. He also makes no mention of uh, Paul's execution, which happened around 67 A.D. So historically, it covers around a 30-year time period. Now, this book has also been relied upon as a foundational element of the church. Much of what we're going to be going through over the next several months, we're going to be looking at a foundational pieces for the early church. And, and I say that because we want so much of this to be a part of the foundation of this church. In fact, if you go to our webpage and you look at what we believe and how we do things, uh, Acts 2.42 is right there at the top. We, we hope to teach the apostles' doctrine. That's what we do every Sunday. We hope to uh, break bread. We hope to fellowship together. That's communion and having meals together and then in prayer. These four simple pillars are things that we are striving to to build as a foundation of this church, but this book is not just merely a foundation. It's also a reference point to come back to. 
as things seem to stray away. We humans can tend to do that. It's a place for us to continually come back to and reminded what the early fathers and beginnings of the church look like. Now, some of you might ask, as you look at this, how is this an instruction manual for the church? Because we don't see nearly enough rules in here for this to be the structure, the foundation of the church. There's no mention of a building committee. There's no mention of a kitchen committee. I mean, the committees have to be somewhere interlaced within Acts in order for this to be a manual. Uh, in fact, you don't see any of those things. Now, I'm clearly uh, kidding with those committees. They serve a very good purpose. God is a God of order. So I don't want to get too far into giving them a hard time. But what we find is there is not a lot of detail God gives other than seemingly basics. So does that mean God wants us to only do the basics? I would encourage you that what he's actually trying to do is get us to rely on him. That so often if we get a manual, and we get a list of things we are to do and check off, who's the first person we ignore? God. We are so quick. Lord, just give me a list. Let me go to work. Because why? I can now do this on my own. I don't have to rely on waiting upon the Lord. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Wait upon the Lord? What a drag. So what we find is God gives us very basic but fundamental and foundational concepts so that we will go back and rely upon him. We'll ask him, Lord, what should we do in this situation? So we see so much of that is what we're hoping to be able to do as a young church. Now, after that, the world's longest introduction, let's begin and get through one whole verse. Chapter 1, verse 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And so Luke begins this letter, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, in the same way that he begins the Gospel of Luke. He's writing specifically to a person, a Theophilus. But notice with me, he says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do. In other words, in his Gospel account, he was only writing the very beginnings. And if that was the beginning of the story in the Gospel, there must be a continuation. And I say that to say, uh, if this is because Jesus is very much alive, along with his word, along with his actions. Our God that we serve is a God that is active and involved. You can look at other world religions, and what you'll find are people like Buddha and Gandhi and, and all these folks. They have these wonderful sayings, really uh, kind of awesome things to say that we'll steal and we'll use them in business and in life. But here's the thing. Um, all those great other religions that have these wonderful sayings, do you know what all of their leaders have in common? They're dead. They ain't alive, folks. They are buried in the ground. They are worm meat. That's the reality. But the beauty of the Christian faith is we don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. He is alive, and he is active and involved. And so all that Jesus began to do was in the Gospels, and now we get to see the continuation, and we get to see the continuation in our lives even to this day. Now, this Theophilus character, who in the world is this guy? Uh, many have proposed that Theophilus was actually Luke's master or owner. Oftentimes in the Roman culture, the very uh, richest of the rich would have doctors and other people they would need on staff, and they'd be considered slaves or servants. So it's also very possible that in that trip in Troas, where Luke would have joined the Apostle Paul, who had his health maladies, it's very possible that there 
uh, Paul actually led Theophilus to Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so Theophilus would have looked at, at Paul's condition knowing he's got some major health issues and would have encouraged Luke to go along with the Apostle Paul so he could help take care of him. And at the same time, as he's helping take care, he's also documenting, like a doctor would do, very diligently, very exactly what was taking place and what had taken place. And so we see is Luke is, in fact, writing a personal account to someone that was important to him, his master, possibly even his friend, uh, Theophilus. I say that because, think about this, Luke is meticulously writing over 25% of the New Testament for one person. So many times when we think about sharing our faith or speaking about our testimony, what do we immediately go to? I'm going to have to share with lots of people. I'm going to have to preach and speak to lots of people if I'm going to be used for Jesus. And yet here's Luke, and he is writing for one. I truly don't believe at any point as Luke is writing the, the acts of the Holy Spirit here, does he ever go, oh man, I got to get back to writing the Bible today. Got a big dead. I mean, I'm writing the Word of God, writing the Bible. Give me a few years. This is going to be really famous. I mean, at no point in time did he think that. Instead, what he was solely and completely focused upon is the one. And you know who else was almost always focused upon the one? Jesus. Think about John chapter 4. He goes to Samaria to speak to one woman at one well. She was that important. He redirected his path to speak to that woman. Luke chapter 19, he's walking through the city of Jericho. What's he do? He looks up in a tree, and he sees, you all remember the Bible story? Wee little Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And what's he do? He points to the one in the tree, and he says, hey, I'm coming to your house today. He wasn't focused on the crowds. He was focused upon the one. And I want to encourage you as you think about what God's done in your life and your testimony don't focus on the masses, focus on the one, because he will put someone in your path that you can speak to directly and specifically just for you. Now, this name Theophilus, if he was not, in fact, a real person, it is interesting to think about his name and what it means. Uh, Theo is Greek for God. Think about theology. It's a study of God. Theo, and his, the ending part of his name is uh, Theophilus, Phyllis. It is the Greek word for love. Phileo is the brotherly kind of love. And so his name literally means lover of God. So if you consider yourself a lover of God, here you go. This letter is for you. Thank you, Dr. Luke. Now, uh, at the end of verse 1, he says, uh, I'm writing all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I think that's important to point out in this first verse is that uh, if I am not willing to go and do, I should not strive to teach. I should be looking to do first and teach second. This was precisely how Jesus lived, by the way. When we look at Matthew chapter 7, as he finished the Sermon on the Mount, his first great teaching, all the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the crowd, they gathered around and they said, man, he speaks as one who has authority. But you know where his authority came from? Obedience. His authority was spelled out and laid out in his obedience. People looked at his life and went, man, he's doing things, but he is, he is preaching things, but he is doing exactly what he says. You think about if you want to have authority in the circles that God has put you in, this is the way to do it. It is to do first, 
to be exactly what you want to be, to do that thing in your workplace, in your home, whoever you interact with. And then what you'll find is as you speak to people, as you share your testimony, you too will have authority. Now, verse 2, until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days in speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So what we see in this, these couple of verses is Jesus appearing to them prior to his ascension, after his resurrection, infallible proofs, meaning uh, he was dead. We saw him on the cross. We saw him beaten and die, and now we see him again in front of us. That's pretty hard to argue. And what we find is Jesus randomly appearing before his disciples. You can imagine how freaky this is. You're in a room. All the doors are closed. You're speaking about what's going on with Jesus, and then Jesus shows up, like, in the flesh. Like, hey, how you doing? Whoa. I mean, that'd be terrifying, right? But I think it's interesting to note that he did it for 40 days. He didn't just do it once. Because one time you can begin to convince yourself with one interaction with our risen Lord, like, oh, maybe I just dreamt that. Maybe we had some kind of group think that, that particular day. You know, maybe somebody put something funny in the water. Jesus changed the water again. Now all of a sudden we're seeing things. That, that kind of thing. We begin to wonder, did that happen? And yet he didn't do it just once. He did it over and over again for a period of 40 days, which is fascinating to me because uh, numbers in the Bible have meaning. I've shared this with you before. Different numbers have different meanings throughout Scripture. And this number 40 might sound familiar to you. How long did it rain in the days of Noah? 40 days. Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach about the uh, impending judgment on Nineveh. How long does he preach? 40 days. 40 days is a day, uh, is a period of judgment. Jesus goes off in the wilderness. How long is he there in the wilderness being tempted by God? But 40 days. So this number is actually a period of judgment. For the unrighteous, it's a period of judgment for their unrighteousness. But for the righteous, this is also a time period where their righteousness can be proved out. And what we find is Jesus was giving them a time, a time period of 40 days specifically so they could judge. Decide for yourselves. You make the decision. You make the call. I'm going to be around here. Now, the other thing that I find fascinating is for some of the disciples, like Thomas, for example, uh, they doubted. When, during one of Jesus' appearances, Thomas wasn't any, anywhere around. He hadn't seen the risen Lord yet. And so when they shared with Thomas, hey, we saw Jesus in the flesh, he's like, yeah, right. You guys are crazy. You have flipped your lid. Unless I see him for myself, unless I touch the wounds in his hands or the wound on his side, I'm not going to believe. What we find is that in John chapter 20, verse 25, is that Jesus shows up to Tom. He says, hey, Tom, check this out. Touch the wounds. Touch my side. And Thomas's reaction is, my Lord and my God. He believed because he saw the risen, the resurrected Jesus. But what I find interesting about that story, the reason I bring that up is Jesus knew Thomas said that. He wasn't supposedly in the room when Thomas doubted, and yet he knew exactly what Thomas had said. And what Jesus is showing us with these 40 days is whether he is there presently in the flesh or he is there in the spirit, the point is he is there. He was with them even when he supposedly wasn't 
with them. And I share that because in your spot that you're in, he is with you even when you don't see him. Even when you don't seem to know it or recognize it or want to even believe it for yourself, he is right there and present to this very day. Now, at the end of verse 3, we see that he uh, appeared before them and he spoke of things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, if you go back to Jesus' early teachings in Matthew 4, you know what he was speaking to them about? The kingdom of God. <laughs> and here he is in his resurrected state. And what's he speaking to them about? The kingdom of God. You noticing a pattern? Jesus didn't change the message. He kept the message the same from the very beginning of his teaching all the way through the end prior to his ascension. And, and, and so often in our lives, he's giving us the same message how does he teach us? This is not the most popular teaching point of this morning, by the way. He so often teaches us through trials and tribulations. That's the ways that we actually get closer to him. I'd love to tell you when I'm doing great that I'm just as close to Jesus as I've ever been. It's all about you, Jesus. But so often it's through my struggles. It's through the hard times. It's through the challenges. Those are the times where I find myself on my knees. Like, Lord, you got to come quick. And as he does that, what is he doing? He is reminding us as he comes alongside us in those struggles that this place is not home. This is not it. Because the reality is when we, even as Christians, we begin to make this place it. We begin to carve out heaven right here uh, on earth. What happens when the trial comes? What happens when the tribulation comes? Now the next thing you know, heavens get shaken up. And I've shared this with you before. If you believe in Jesus, this is the closest to hell you are ever going to get. That's reassuring. Now, conversely, if you don't, this is as close to heaven as you're going to get. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world tries to carve out a heaven here on earth because this is as close to heaven as they're going to get. And if you've traded, if you've traded heaven for this being heaven, oh man, folks, this is one hell of heaven. I mean, truly it is. Matthew 6.33 tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then guess what? All the other things get added. <laughs> so many times I want to get to the other things, and I forsake the kingdom of God. Jesus says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all the other things he is going to take care of. Now then verse 4 and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, speaking of John the Baptist, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so we have the introduction to this concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to speak to that and, and lay out for you in this, uh, in this text that as they're gathered there together, he speaks to them about this baptism. But there are three different relationships we see in Scripture that people have with the Holy Spirit. Now, this may be elementary to you. For me, this was life-changing when I finally understood relationships we have with the Holy Spirit. So the first relationship is uh, he is with us. The Greek preposition in that spot is para. The Holy Spirit is with us. He is para or alongside us. That is the case for every person on earth. 
Every person has a relationship with the Holy Spirit where he walks alongside and speaks into your conscience. That's that little voice we all know, right? The, the little voice that says, hey, don't do that. That's such a good idea. You should probably turn, run from here, run from there. And so we see is this, this little voice whispers into our conscience to come alongside us, to guide us. And his purpose in this relationship is you need a Savior. <laughs> you need a Savior. It's got to be better than this. And so he directs, he points people to Jesus. That's what he hopes to do. And yet, on the negative side of this relationship, he can be blasphemed. If you've heard of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what that is is a continual, repetitive denial, rejection of the voice, and a rejection of the Spirit of God. And so, as we reject, and over and over again, we harden our heart, and harden our heart, and harden our heart. It's just like the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. He hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and then eventually what happened is God hardened his heart. No longer did he have the ability to change, to actually accept Jesus as his Savior. And so, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're in here right now and you're worried, maybe I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I'm a little scared. Here's the thing. If you're worried that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the fact that you even have a consciousness of God, that you might have done so much that he cannot change you and change your heart, you haven't gotten there yet. That's your encouragement today. Now, you all probably know people that have been in this spot, and they have no God consciousness. You, you see them all the time, all over the world. They, they just have shut him off so much, they have no consciousness of God. Now, the second relationship happens after we have allowed the Holy Spirit to direct us to needing a Savior. He then dwells in us. This word dwells is the same word as tabernacles. You begin to get Old Testament images of the tabernacle with the Spirit coming down to dwell within the people. And so he dwells uh, in us. And in John chapter 20, verse 22, we don't see this relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Bible until Jesus' resurrection. He had to be broken in order for his Spirit to actually go out and dwell in us. In verse uh, 22 of chapter 20, And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. At that point, he became within the body of the believer. Now, what this did, in effect, is this brought mankind back into community with God for the first time. The first Adam came, and he screwed it all up for all of us. Thank you, Adam. We appreciate that. He broke community. He broke the fellowship that we could have had face-to-face -face with God in relationship with him. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, the perfect man, came in and recreated. He reconnected this community with God by allowing us to have the Holy Spirit within us. And this takes place at the point of salvation, of accepting him as your Lord and Savior. But there is a negative side that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. So this is where this concept comes from. Paul addresses it in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll go there and read this for you. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God in Christ forgave you. After accepting the Holy Spirit and being sealed for redemption, you can live a life of habitual sin, and what happens is you grieve the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you've met anyone who has accepted Jesus, yet they cannot get themselves out of a cycle of sin, uh, and they have grieved the Holy Spirit, you will find the most miserable human being you will ever come across. Because they know him. They know they're saved. And yet over and over and over again, they grieve him. And this word grieve is the same phrase that, that a parent would use for a lost child. Right? If you've ever been in that relationship with a child, you know how painful that is. It's a grieving. It's a mourning of wanting the child to return and just simply to come back. Now, the third relationship, and the one we're going to focus on here in just a moment, in verse 8, but it is the coming upon by the Holy Spirit. The Greek preposition is epi. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what it does is it provides power to the believer. He provides power when he comes upon the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. Now, the power to do things like the miraculous, to actually see the miraculous uh, take place. This is that baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so it's exciting. And as we go through the book of Acts, what you're going to find as we study this is there are many miracles as they are empowered and given power by the Holy Spirit. But as you do, and you think and you wonder, well, why don't we see miracles today? Why don't we see miracles like this more often? I just shared with you in the introduction that the, the, the book of Acts covers a 30-year period. What you'd find is if you went through and counted the miracles, you would come up with 31 miracles in the book of Acts. Now I'm going to encourage you to start to journal. I've talked to you about this before. If you're a man, it's called journaling. If you're a woman, it's a diary. But we're too manly to call it a diary. So it's a journal. I want to encourage you guys to, and gals, to journal. And as you do, as you document, put your prayers to the Lord. Lord, this is what's going on. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. Lord, this is what I'm praying for. I want to challenge you to do that for a year and then go back. I guarantee you will find more than one thing that cannot be explained by science or reason or logic. And you know why? Because God's still in the miracle business. He never stopped. We stopped paying attention at some point. That's the issue at hand. And so God is very much in the miracle business. And yet, this third negative relationship we can have with the Holy Spirit is we can quench him. We can take this this empowering by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it's going to show up like a flame of fire above the head of the disciples. But that flame can be extinguished through unbelief. When Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, what he, he did many miracles everywhere else except there because of their unbelief. He could not do many miracles because they did not believe. This is what the Holy Spirit being quenched looks like. When we begin to doubt and go, oh, God used to be up to miracles, but today he is not. I share that with you to say he is still very much in the miracle business. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And so again, they're concerned about his the restoration of the kingdom. They've got this serious question. Lord, when is your kingdom going to come? You're talking about the kingdom of God. We're getting all jazzed. You've raised yourself from the dead. Let's go. And so in verse 7, the Lord answers and says, and he said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or seasons in which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus said, it's none of your business. <laughs> you ever gotten that answer from God? <laughs> I have, lots of times. The Lord says, you know what? Uh, you can't handle that. He's like Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle that kind of information right now. And many times we get upset because we want an explanation for everything. But the thing is, God doesn't owe you an explanation. There are many things that take place that we have no knowledge or understanding of. So Jesus basically says, look, you're not going to get an answer on that one. Sorry, guys. And yet he connects it to verse 8. They've asked about the kingdom of Israel. He then goes on in verse 8 and says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's that Greek preposition, epi. When he comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus gets a question about his kingdom. and What's he immediately do? He shares with them the power that they will receive to be uh, witnesses to the kingdom. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to give you power because the kingdom is going to dwell in you, in each and every one of you. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's you taking Jesus Christ personally within you and then sharing that with others. The word Christian, it could uh, in Greek is Christianos. It literally means little Christ. You are called to be little Christ in all your different social circles, all the places I can't get to, but you can. You get to be a little Christ where you work, in your home, to your neighbor. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But here's the thing. He doesn't just send us out as little Christ to go out there and flounder around. What's Jesus saying? I'm going to give you power to do that. I'm going to give you power to be a witness. He's giving you gasoline in the car. Nobody would fill up the car with gas to sit in the driveway and rev the engine. Some of you did that when you were 16, though. You thought it was pretty cool, looking to impress a lady. Did you ever notice when you sat in the parking lot of school and revved the engine, uh, who actually gathered around, guys? Other dudes. Yeah. You know, you weren't impressing any woman whatsoever. They're like, you are a moron. And they just kept on walking. Because no one would sit in the driveway just to rev the engine. Jesus is saying, okay, one person. All right. One. One of you. All right. But here's the point of the story. It's, it's to go. I'm going to give you power to be able to go, to go out and be a witness to who? To Jerusalem. Where is your Jerusalem? That's the people closest to you. In Judea, that's the people a little bit further away. In Samaria, a little bit further away, and in all the world. By the way, there's your outline for the whole book of Acts. As we go through this, you will see that each of these chapters cover those different sections as the gospel goes forth. So this is the encouragement that we get for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why we get the empowering. The word in the Greek is dunamos. Literally translated, it means dynamite. It's Jimmy J.J. Walker dynamite power. That's what Jesus says he's given us. Not to just flounder and flop around, but to have dynamite power in our lives. I read through this years ago just came back to Jesus. And I was sitting in an airport in Baltimore, and I was reading a book about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power we could receive. 
I remember sitting there. It was late at night, and I was by myself in a corner waiting on a flight. I was so bothered because I'm reading in this book these powerful experiences people would have with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They'd speak in tongues. I didn't speak in any tongues. I spoke redneck. Apparently, that's not the tongue that I was hoping I'd be able to speak in. I didn't have any of these things. I remember just crying out to the Lord, sitting there, hoping nobody would see me with tears in my eyes, saying, Lord, I want to be baptized. I want to be powerful. I want this. How do I receive this? I ended up in Luke chapter 11. Not by happenstance. God literally just dropped me in this spot. And this is what I read in verse 13. This is after Jesus is sharing about how fathers are with their children. He says, if you, being evil, thank you, Lord, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Whoa. All I have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. And so you better believe I was all about asking. Lord, let me have it. And the thing is, I didn't speak in tongues sitting in the airport. I didn't see flames shoot out of my fingers. I tried. Trying to zap people. But what happened was after being baptized in the Holy Spirit, my testimony became more powerful. People around me started to become saved. I had a dear friend that I would only see every so often, but he lived out in California. We'd talk on the phone. And he, he, I remember we had a conversation on a Wednesday night before I was getting ready to go speak. And he said, my problem is I hate Christians. <laughs> That's what he told me. I'm like, oh, this is encouraging. But after speaking with him, he ended up coming to know Jesus for the first time in his life because his hate wasn't for Christians. His hate was for religiosity. He hated the structure because people had spoken down to him his whole life. And that gentleman came to know Jesus. And it wasn't through my power. This was through a power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And if we go out there and we try to be witnesses to people without this power, you're going to leave yourself very, very frustrated. But if you want it, all you have to do is ask. And like a good dad, he wants to pour it all over you and bless your socks off. Now back to the text at hand, verse 9, as we head down the home stretch this morning. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. We don't know exactly what this cloud is, but in my mind I've got this, like the cloud of witness that came down into the tabernacle, or down into the temple, the Shekinah glory of God, came down and lifted Jesus up and took him off to heaven, out of their sight. In verse 10, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as, they went, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I mean, here are these two guys just show up. Like, oh, where'd you come from? Who these two men are, we don't know. They could be angels. They could even be Matthew 17 witnesses. This would be Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17. It could be the two witnesses from Revelation. Either way, these two men just appear, and they say in verse 11, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you gaze up into heaven? I mean, Jesus just disappeared. Wow. This same Jesus who is taken up into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They said, what are you looking up for? This same Jesus who went away, guess what his promise is? He went away in this manner. He's going to come back in the same manner. John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me. That's what they were saying. Look, guys, you're looking up into heaven, but here's the promise of Jesus. He's going to come back in the same manner, and he's going to come back to get you in the same way. He's not going to leave you here just to perish. As I was thinking about how to wrap this, um, this section of teaching up this week, nothing really came. <laughs> Some weeks are like that. Except this one phrase, this same Jesus. Over and over again, God put that on my heart, this same Jesus. I was thinking about that and, and praying through that, and I thought, as it related to me, boy, I can change like the wind blows. I don't know about you guys. I change based upon my emotion, based upon my feelings, based upon the weather. I mean, it's amazing how quickly I change and I flip-flop back and forth. I change based upon my notions and judgments. I am so quick to want to judge and change how I feel about someone or feel about a situation. And then because of that, I take how I change, and I want to put that on the Father. Surely Jesus changes the way he feels about me based upon the situation, right? Surely based upon how I've acted, how I've performed, how I've done, how I've not done a very good job, I've sinned and fallen so short of his glory. Surely he changes based upon how I've done because that's, that's how I am. And then I get to the text and it says, this same Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reality is, his opinion, his thoughts about me, about you, they do not change. They don't. We begin to want to put our persona on him and go, surely, Lord, you're mad at me, you're upset with me, you're going to strike me down. But what Jesus says over and over again is, I'm not going to change. You're going to change. You're going to flip-flop more than Al Gore trying to figure out global warming. That's you. That's not Jesus. That's not how he operates. And so, as I was thinking about this same Jesus, what does he say about me? What does this same Jesus say about you and I? And I, I, I go back to Jeremiah 29. This is one of those verses you probably have hanging on the wall of your house. Thank you, Hobby Lobby, for signs for our house. But Jeremiah pins this down. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's what this same Jesus says about me. I fast forward a little bit back to Ephesians chapter 2. What the Apostle Paul says there in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Imagine that. This same Jesus 
prepared works before he made you. He made you to fit the works he had in mind for you. From before the foundation of the earth, we so often doubt our abilities and what we can do and what we can't do, and we want to change the way God feels about us based upon our emotion. But what Jesus says over and over and over again is, I created you. He calls you his workmanship. Think about that. He says, I made works for you even before the foundation of the work of the earth so that you could walk in those. But we listen to the lies of the enemy. He wants to beat us down and discourage us over and over again. But this same Jesus says it's not true. I want to encourage you guys this week. As you look through Scripture, please look through Scripture. Read what Jesus says about you and stop listening to the lies that you're a failure, that you can't do it, that you're not good enough, that surely God doesn't love you through this spot. Because when I'm in a bad spot, that's how I feel. And I have to be reminded I am his workmanship. Father, thank you. And I praise you that you are the same. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for creating works for us to do even before you created us. Thank you that in the midst of our doubt and our struggle and our unbelief, you come alongside and prop us up, Lord. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you so much for the power of the Holy Spirit. It can still to this very day perform miracles, Lord. Thank you that this same Jesus that was a miracle worker through the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and the book of Acts is the same Jesus that is present and alive today and can perform miracles today. And all we have to do is believe. Lord, I'm blown away. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand?
Thank you so much. It's great to see you this morning. Look forward to seeing you next week or tonight at the Harvest of Hope. Bring a little sunscreen. All right, we prayed for dry weather. We forgot to pray about heat. So be more specific with your prayers. That's a joke. It's okay to chuckle a little bit. All right. Thank you, guys. God bless you. If you need prayer at all, I'll be hanging around up front.